Well, welcome to The Vine. If you're relatively new, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're here. If you're watching us online, if you're joining us uh, for the first time online or regularly, we're glad that you're part of our church online experience. It's great to have you here. Um, who, who's enjoyed the Psalm 23 series so far? Um, people enjoying that one? Yeah, awesome. Great, great. Good. That'll stop today. Stops today. Because today... We enter into verse 5 of Psalm 23, the most challenging and the most critical of the verses of the psalm. In fact, in verse 5 of Psalm 23, David changes everything. And he changes everything because he has something so important to say to God's people if they want to be a non-anxious presence in the chaos of this world. And he changes the imagery in verse 5 from a shepherd imagery that verses 1 to 4 has been kind of obsessed with to a completely new imagery, that of a king. And not just a king, but a king who has a table and is hosting people at the table. Now, this is completely different from the idea of God being a shepherd kind of a lowly, meek shepherd who's leading his sheep in green pastures and quiet waters, restoring our souls. And even when we go through dark valleys, his presence is with us. And all that imagery has been kind of calm and gentle and challenging, but welcoming. And we want God to be our our shepherd. But now he flips it and says, we're going to go from this meek and humble image to a powerful image, image of God as a king. And not just a king, but a a king who provides lavish generosity on his people, who who gives oil to his people, anoints them, and wants them to experience the greatest part of life, who takes the cup, a a wine, the wine of his grace and his goodness, and it's like free flow, not for 90 minutes for brunch on a Saturday, but like your cup overflows, free flow for life, for eternity. And David does this because he has something critical to say. He wants to change the imagery to sort of jar you, maybe out of a slight slumberness, into the soberness that if you don't grasp a hold of this one particular issue, you can never be a non-anxious presence amid the chaos of this world. In fact, the issue David's about to speak about is the issue that causes the most anxiety for us. The most fear-inducing issue is the one that he now turns to. And it's like he's saying, we cannot go further unless we soberly realize that unless we're doing something about this issue in our lives, there's no chance. Even if we know that God is our shepherd, there's still no chance that we'll find ourselves in such deep peace that people will want to follow Jesus. In fact, if the church gets this issue wrong, it has the power to repel people from Jesus rather than draw them in. What is the issue? Well, let me introduce it to you by reading you Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. On the surface, this is an amazing verse. I mean, I wonder if you can just soak for a moment in the kingly imagery. You prepare a table for me. 
And this table is a place of abundance and generosity. It's a table that symbolizes a blessing. God pouring his oil out on me. It's a table of joy, a table of of restoration, a table of life abundant. It's a table of safety and security and peace. And David is saying, God provides this table for us. And we think this is the most amazing thing. And then we read, in the presence of my enemies. And we think for ourselves, that doesn't sound like a table of joy and abundance. In the presence of my enemies? I mean, if I was writing this verse and I wanted to communicate to you joy and abundance and generosity and how God just does that for us, here's what I would say. You prepare a table before me in the place where you've extinguished all my enemies. Ah. Now that's joyful. I mean, I mean stop for a moment and think about a world where you do not have any enemies. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be in a place where no one hated you? No one disliked you. No one said anything about you behind your back. You had no social media trolls, Ellison. Could you imagine that? (laughs) Could you imagine it, Ellison? Where no one says anything bad about you online. No one ever does anything harm to you. You you live a, a peaceful Free life. Now that sounds like joy. That sounds like abundance and generosity, but David did not write that. Or maybe David could have said it like this. You prepare a table before me in your presence, O Lord. Oh, yes. Now that would be joy. Could you imagine if you had a table in the presence of God? Imagine if you had a table where you sat one side and God sat the other side and you just spent your life feasting with the free flow of his grace. I mean, how amazing would it be if no one else was around other than you and God? That intimacy we just talked about, the holy ground that we all long for, it would be like that 24-7. Could you imagine the joy and the abundance in that? If I was to try to communicate to you joy, I would say it's a table in God's presence. But David doesn't write that. David writes, this table is in the presence of your enemies, the ones you hate, the ones who hate you. The ones who can't stand you. The ones who want to tear you apart. The ones who want to pull you down, smear your reputation, make everything bad possible about you. The ones who would like to end your life. It's that table. And you have those people in your life. God has prepared a table for you before those people. And David is trying to twist this imagery and make it seem strange. Generosity, joy, oil flowing, this free flow of God's love and grace, and yet the presence of my enemies. What does this all mean? And and David's designing it so that you would ask one simple question. Why? Why do I have this table? What, What is this table actually for? What does this mean? Why is David saying this? Well, there's a traditional answer to that question. And the traditional answer has been loved and celebrated for so many years, hundreds and hundreds of years. In the traditional answer to the why about David's verse, the traditional answer will tell you this. It will say, here's what it's about. David is picking up on Old Testament imagery. 
And it's beautiful imagery. The imagery of Israel and their enemies. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that Israel constantly was surrounded by enemies. They were almost constantly at war with the people around them. There was always this battle going on. And if you look through the Psalms, and if you look through the Old Testament prophets, you'll see time and time again passages of, we are victorious over our enemies. Passages of, Lord, smite our enemies. Passages about pulling down the enemies, sending them to the pits of hell so God's chosen people can live a glorious life. With, with the traditional point of view, the perspective of it, it's like this. God prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. <laughs> the idea is that we are having a constant party in the presence of all the people that we hate. Could you imagine what that would be like? That would be awesome. I mean, that's a table I want to go to, right? Wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, think about this. I have a very long list of people that I don't like. <laughs> Maybe you also have a long list of people you don't like. I also have a long list of people who don't like me. People who don't like the vine. I think the vine is a bad church. That we preach heresy here. That this is not a good place to be. I've had social media stuff said about me, rumors spread about me. I mean, I've got people I could list that keep me up at night that I really struggle to love. Could you imagine if God surrounded this table with those people and he gave me a cup of his blessing and poured his oil on me and I could sit there and go, ha, 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 look how I turned out. I mean, come on, that sounds amazing. Doesn't that sound amazing? It sounds amazing, but it doesn't sound very Christian. <laughs> and that's a little bit of a problem if you're a Christian here in this room or online right now. Because kind of we want that traditional interpretation because it would feel great to like gloat in front of our enemies. But the imagery doesn't sit well with us, does it? And it doesn't sit well with us for some very good reasons. Because I don't know if that's quite the table God has provided for us. In fact, if you look at Jesus and his teachings, you'll get a sense of this. This is Jesus teaching in Matthew 5, starting in verse 43, Sermon on the Mount. Most important thing Jesus does right at the beginning of his ministry, wanting people to understand why he's come, what he's going to do, the type of kingdom he's inviting people into. Listen to this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. <laughs> Gloat. Over your enemies. But I tell you this. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father or sons and daughters of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. Notice this. Jesus is talking here. He's going to make great things happen for the evil people and the good people. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, <laughs> what kind of reward do you get? What kind of reward is that? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing that's more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? No. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, this is amazing to me. Jesus is basically standing before Psalm 23, 5 in the traditional way that it's understood. And he's saying that is not it at all. In fact, here's what Jesus does, and if you forgive the pun, he turns the table over. And he basically says, you want to know how to live in my kingdom? You want to know what life is like with me? It's not a joy of 
lying down and drinking my cup and gloating in front of your enemies. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to approach your enemies. I want you to be in communion with your enemies. I want you to experience the greatest thing that you could ever experience, and that is communion with the very people who want to tear you apart. I want that for you, Jesus is saying. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of Scripture, uh, he put it on verse 48. Let me read this to you. He says, in a word, what I'm saying is this, grow up. You're kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out of your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Oh, I prefer the traditional approach. How about you? Live graciously and generously towards those who may not be gracious or generous towards you. Notice that Jesus does not say, live generously with people who live generously with you. Be nice to the people who are nice with you. He's saying, be gracious and generous with all people. Why? Not because of their reaction, not because of the, how they treat you, not because of their words, but because of how I treat you. Right? I'm treating you with grace. I'm treating you with love. I'm empowering you. So I'm doing that. The way I work with you, I want you to work with others. And he doesn't say only with the people who are nice. He's inviting us into a new journey. So how do we then understand Psalm 23, verse 5? Well, I want to put it to you today that actually, I think the traditional interpretation is completely wrong and there's an original interpretation. One that actually I think David was thinking about as he wrote this. An interpretation that when you see the language of verse 5, you'll come to see is far more in line with Jesus than you may have first thought. Have a look again in Psalm 23, verse 5. It says, you prepare a table before me. Very important. David says, you provide a table before me. The idea of a table being before him is the, uh, it's actually the Hebrew word, lefanai. And lefanai pitches the idea uh, that a table is created before. Lefanai means in front of. And, and what's interesting about that Hebrew word is it's a word that doesn't carry with it any ownership or claim. In other words, David's saying, this is not my table. This is not David's table, it is not my table, it is not your table, it is Lefani. It is prepared before you, in front of you, but it is not yours. Because if David had said, oh, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, what he would have been saying is basically like the traditional approach. The table's for me, it is not for my enemies. My enemies have to stand around and suffer watching me gloat and enjoy myself. The table is for me. Are you following? He doesn't say that. David specifically says, it's a table that I do not own. It is not a table that has my name on it. It is a table that is before me, in front of me. And because it's in front of me, there's an invitation. In other words, actually, lefani, the Hebrew word, actually has a welcome and an, and an invitation to it. It's basically God saying, you are surrounded by your enemies. I provided a table for you. Will you have a seat, David? Will you sit down at my table in the presence of your enemies? What even blows my mind even more is that he then uses another word for this. He says, in the presence of my enemies. In the presence is the Hebrew word neged. Neged means confrontation. It means against or opposite. 
What the word means is that there are two parties, two individuals or two groups that are at war with each other. So when David says, you prepare a table before me in the neged of my enemies, David's including himself in that strife, in that tension, in the war that's happening. That's really important. This is not about David going, I'm perfect and my enemies suck. This is David going, there is a war going on. I feel passionately as well. I've been hurt. I know I've hurt. There's stuff happening here. And it's like God shows up and he takes the two warring parties and he pushes them aside and he places a table before them, in between them, if you will. And not only, and this is the powerful thing, not only is God opening up the table for David, he's also saying it's in the presence of your enemies. In other words, it's their table too. And if it's their table, then God is also opening up an invitation for your enemies to sit down. Oh, oh, and that's not so nice. What was supposed to be a lovely meal is now turned into tension in the air. I could cut the tension with a knife. It wasn't quite the plan that I had to begin with. God is saying we get to sit down at a table and have a meal with our enemies. Hmm. The Hebrew word for meal, which is not in this passage, is the word shuel. And shuel is a derivative word from another word that is in this passage, and that's the word table. Table is shokan. Shokan is the place we come to to have a shuel, a meal with someone. Now, shokan, although it's translated here table and it means table, it was also used metaphorically in the Old Testament for an act of reconciliation. The table, the shokan, was a place where a shokan could take place. In fact, an act of reconciliation at a table had another Hebrew word. It's the word soha. So I have a shokan that enables me to have a shuel with someone, a meal, so that we can soha together, we can reconcile. We can deal with our differences. We can change our attitudes. We can talk about the stuff that we wouldn't normally talk about. We'd take that big elephant in the corner of the room and we'd sacrifice it and we'd eat it together as we shoel together on the shokan so that we can have a soha. Are you with me? Now, this idea of a table being the place of reconciliation is throughout the scriptures. In fact, in the New Testament, it becomes the predominant picture of what reconciliation is all about. I'll give you a couple of just quick examples. There's that amazing moment in Luke chapter 7 where the woman comes in whilst Jesus is at the table. By the way, a bit of a side note. Jesus, basically throughout the Gospels, is either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. That's basically Jesus. He's just pigging out the whole time, right? And it's because of the Shuel and the Shokan. So there's this woman who comes into Simon's house in Luke chapter 7 and sits down and actually comes behind Jesus who's at the table and she breaks open an alabaster jar of oil and pours it on his feet and she weeps and and wipes his feet with her hair and it's a beautiful picture of her restoring herself, reconciling herself with the one that she believes is her Messiah, the Savior. And Jesus in front of everybody says, your sins are forgiven reconciliation with God. And then there's that amazing moment, isn't there, where Peter has denied Christ three times and he's taken off and he's gone back fishing and Jesus shows up in the resurrection and makes a barbecue and invites Peter for a shuel with him. 
and they share fish together. And during the meal, they reconcile with one another and connect deeply together. And of course, there's that moment in Acts chapter 2 where the church is establishing the rhythms of what church is going to look like. And it says there that on every day, they met together in each other's homes. They broke bread together with sincere and glad hearts. The Hebrew for sincere there means without any rocks. That's the literal translation. In other words, the early church practiced a daily practice of coming around the people in the community and having a meal together so they could talk about stuff and make sure no rocks were getting in between their relationship. They embraced Shokan as part of their church community. And all of this culminates in the early church going, hang on, how do we create a symbol that will help the world to understand reconciliation. Let me think about it. Let me, oh, I know. <laughs> this is Paul, right? Bing! On the night that Jesus was betrayed, do you know what he did? He took bread and he took wine and he shared a meal with us. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so the early church did this incredible thing. They started to gather around together and celebrate in the reality that the best symbol that there could be for reconciliation is a table. And not just a table, but a meal at the table. And we've come to understand it as communion. That we take the bread and we take the wine and it's a way of us saying we are reconciled with God. That there's no longer any rocks between us and God. That he's poured out his spirit, poured out his love, and we are now restored to the fullness of relationship with him. And it's symbolized by a meal. And here's the powerful thing. When you think about communion, you're not sitting on this side of the table. No, 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 no. When you think about communion, you're sitting on this side of the table because you're the enemy that's been invited to the table. You're the one who was at odds against God. In fact, Paul, writing in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, said it, this way, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were enemies of God, whilst we were still separate from him, a long way from him, God came and offered reconciliation to us. He took the first move. Christ died for us whilst we were still sinners, whilst we were his enemies. He could have sat at the table and gloated with his angels at how bad humanity was, but instead he prepared a table. He invited us to come and sit. He broke the bread. He spilled his blood. He did it on the cross of Calvary so we would know Shokan with God. Are you with me? And what this all is suggesting is if God has invited us to his table and if he is Shokan with us so we could have reconciliation with him, how can we then hold that back from others? How can we then stand on the other side, grab the chalice and gloat at our enemies? Could it be that actually David was right in line with Christ and was saying the table is set before us in the presence of our enemies so that we might know love, community. So that all that anxiety and stress that we hold in our hearts and our lives could be dealt with right here at the table. I love this idea because I want you to see how David then speaks of the reality of what a community could be like if it actually shokanned with one another. He says this. He says, oh, you anoint my head with oil. It's like, you know, when I no longer have enmity with other people, 
when I actually sit down and reconcile with the people that have been against me, when I feel that connection, when we actually deal with some of our issues where we forgive one another, it's a little bit like God pours his... I'm not going to do it. Don't worry. I'm not going to do it. But God's going to pour his oil on my head and I'll have this anointing and it'll be like a blessing and we'll both be anointed together. Which is really interesting because if you jump a little bit forward to Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2, listen to what it says. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, when people live together in unity. Ah, you want to know what it's like? It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robes. It is not this posture. It is... This posture. And that posture is like an anointing that pours over our heads and runs down our robes and we're filled with the anointing of God. Uh, Back in Psalm 23, then it says, my cup overflows, the free flow forever. Why? Because there's no enmity here. Remember when I said earlier in my message, could you imagine what it would be like to have no enemies? When Jesus challenges the church and he says you should love your enemies, he's inviting you into that world. He's inviting you into the place where you actually don't have enemies, where actually you can be free. Because I want you to know this. The place of greatest stress and anxiety, the place that's going to make you, a non, uh, make you more of an anxious person in the chaos of this world is when you don't deal with the friction that you've got in relationships with others. Your brokenness in your relationship with others will be the number one stress-inducing thing in your life. It will tear you apart. I know every single one of us in this room, we know what it's like to have division with people. Some of you in this room, that division's with your family members. In the last three years here in Hong Kong and all the political stuff that's happened has torn you apart in your relationships with your mothers and your fathers and your families. Some of you in here, you know what that's like with your spouse right now. And you're in enmity with the one that you were originally brought together with, with such love and such grace and And yet right now, the reality is you know what it feels like to be against one another. Some of you, it might be a colleague at work. It might be some sort of relationship in your life. We all know that feeling, don't we? And that anxiety and stress that is there. It is so hard for us to find a place of peace when we are at enmity with people. And God has prepared a table before us and before them. And he said, will you come and sit? It's going to take courage from you. It's going to take a huge amount of grace in you. It's going to take you having the ability, this is where it gets hard, you having the ability to go, I was also wrong. That I actually made some mistakes too. That it's not all about you. It's also about me. It's going to take some of us actually being willing to ask for forgiveness. And there's no more humbling thing to do in the world than that. And it's going to take some of us braving the pain that the enemy has caused in us. Braving the the hurt that sits there. And by saying that we are to love our enemies, God is not saying just continue to be abused by your enemy. He's not saying even you have to like everything the enemy does. He's not saying you have to accept all the stuff that the enemy has done to you. He's saying you have to love them. And how does love most gloriously get portrayed in life? Through the cross. Through the laying down of our pride and our humility 
And it's picking up our cross and following after Christ and saying love means to say that the same God who forgave me can also forgive them. And if the same God can forgive them, how can I not forgive them? It's not easy, is it? When, Jesus, when David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, we'd love to gloat. But actually, we have to submit. How do we do this? Let me give you some practical ways as I close. Has this been helpful for some of you so far? Let me give you some practical ways that you this week can start a shokan with someone that you might need to shokan with. Here's the first thing. You have to embrace Jesus' perspective that the concept of an enemy is never permanent. The concept of an enemy is never permanent. The idea of an enemy is always temporary in God's eyes because God has the ability and the power and the grace to change an enemy to a friend. And if our starting point is, there's no way this is ever going to happen. There's no way they're ever going to like me again. There's no way that this is everything. They're going to be my enemy forever. Then we're in the wrong starting point. We're not starting point from the perspective of Jesus. We're starting from the perspective of ourselves. So we have to believe that enemy states are temporary and that actually God has the ability to change everything in the power of his name. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We have to realize <laughs> that if we want to be reconciled with others, we have to first be reconciled with God. Our starting point is reconciliation with God. In fact, not just that, but our ability to feel the reconciliation of God will directly be our ability to offer that reconciliation with others. The more that we have been forgiven, the more that we are able to forgive. He who has been forgiven much is able to forgive a lot. He that's been loved a lot is able to love a lot. Those that have been forgiven little, forgive little. I mean, this whole thing is in our scriptures. Jesus speaks about this a lot. And so your ability to understand the reconciliation of God, to feel that power yourself, will be directly your power to be able to then pass that on. And that's great news for some of you in this room if you're not a Christian. If you're watching online right now and you're not a Christian, there's a table set before you where God invites you to come into a new relationship with him. He doesn't see you as an enemy. He sees you as a friend already. Whilst you were still distant from him, he died for you, as we saw in that scripture earlier. He invites you to the table of reconciliation and love so that you would know his forgiveness and his power. But this verse or this part here is not just for non-Christians in this room. It's also for you as Christians. It's challenging you that you need to have short accounts with God that actually your job is to walk in his grace and forgiveness, to come to the table regularly, both as we take communion in church, the blood and the bread that symbolizes that, but in your own prayer life, regularly coming before the Lord and saying, would you forgive me, Lord? I screwed up again in this. I said this here. I did this here. I'm not proud of what I did. I'm coming into that repentive discipline that I have to be able to be reconciled with you so that I can then offer reconciliation to others. Here's the third thing. You have to always embrace your own brokenness. You have to be willing to accept that you are also wrong. Reconciliation at the table is not, hey, buddy, would you come and join me for the table? I want you to come and have a meal with me because I want to spend 45 minutes telling you how bad you are. Right? Like, who, who would enjoy that meal, right? <laughs> Maybe you would. I don't know. I but that's not the idea. The idea is this, is this table is not prepared so I can spend the whole time telling you how bad you are and how much you've hurt me. 
The table is prepared so that I would realize that I am a contributing factor. Remember, two people at enmity with one another, and God moves them apart and places the table there. Our first posture as we sit down is I've made mistakes too. I've screwed up in this relationship as well. I didn't do it all right either. And yeah, you hurt me, and there were things you did that really hurt me, and I want to be honest about that, and we're going to talk about that. But my starting point is I've also contributed to this mess, and I want to just admit that before you and ask for your forgiveness. It's powerful. Notice this. Here's the fourth thing. Forgiveness is an event, but reconciliation is a process. It's a process. You know, it's interesting. In Scripture, Jesus said this. He said, basically, forgiveness is a command. Jesus commands us to forgive. He says it so strongly that he says, if you don't forgive, then I will not forgive you. That's strong. So forgiveness is a command of God. Now, the reason why it's a command is because it's something you can do just yourself. You are able to just forgive because you don't need a third party or somebody else to be involved in that. The choice is on you. When God commands you to forgive, whether that person ever says sorry, whether that person ever acts better, whether that person ever does more nice things for you or not, even if they continue to abuse you, continue to criticize you, continue to pull you down, it does not matter. The command is still for you to find a place in your life to forgive them. So forgiveness is an event. It's a command. It's something we do. Reconciliation, though, Paul writes this. He says it's a ministry. It's not a command, a ministry, because it takes two people. No longer are you solely responsible. You're solely responsible for the forgiveness in your heart, but you can't be solely responsible for reconciliation around a table. That involves another's free choice. You may end up sitting at the table, and they never take their seat. You have to recognize that reconciliation is a process that we go through. And sometimes it takes a lot longer than we might like. It's not always that one meal and suddenly it's rainbows and my little ponies. It takes hard work sometimes. It takes time to allow the conversations to be what they are. Some of you just need to allow yourself to be in a process. Maybe stop kind of putting that expectation on yourself that it needs to be fixed by now and recognize you're in a process. And as long as both of you are working into that process, then you can believe that restoration and reconciliation can come. And here's the last thing. Do it over a meal. Literally, do it over a meal. There's something quite powerful in the reality of sitting down for an hour and a half with someone, having some unhurried time, and inviting them to a meal, and having a conversation with them about the things that you haven't been able to have a conversation with. The reason why it's great around a table is because you can't run away. Well, you can, but, but generally people don't run away, right? It's over food, so there's usually other talk and conversation. There's an enjoyment together, and yet then there's that open space for that conversation to happen. I want to challenge you, invite you to invite somebody out for a meal this week that you need to shokan with. I'm a bit nervous saying that because I might get a lot of invitations this week for dinner. (laughs) Who is it that God might be asking you today to invite to a meal so that you can sit down and not gloat at them for 45 minutes, but actually do what this passage encourages us to do and reconcile. Could you imagine a Hong Kong where there were no enemies? Could you imagine your family where divisions are restored? Could you imagine your workplace where it's a place of family and community and life and not draining every moment of your life. Could you imagine what it would feel like for you if you were able to be a non-anxious presence in the chaos of this world? And the only way that will happen is if you embrace the table. 
The Holy Spirit is basically saying to you today, I've set a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And your head could be anointed with oil. Your cup could overflow. You could be that non-anxious presence in a chaotic world. The question is, will you sit down? Can we pray together? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your presence. Grateful for the holy ground that you prepared for us today. And we're grateful for this topic that's not easy. And Lord, I want to pray now over every person here. Lord, each one of us has broken relationships in our lives. Each one of us has areas in our lives that where we have enemies, people that we've hurt, people that have hurt us. Each one of us knows what it's like to carry the stress of relationships that are in turmoil. And just like last week, you don't promise the immediate end to all of those things. But what you're offering us today is a sobering thing. That because you have reconciled with us who were once your enemies, you now are empowering us in the kingdom to offer reconciliation to those around us. And Lord, there is nothing that is more liberating than us being at peace with those that we were once at enmity with. Holy Spirit, I want to pray, Lord. I love the fact that in this verse, David says, it's like oil flowing over me. It's like my cup never is dry. That's what it feels like when I'm reconciled with my enemies, David is saying. It's like this constant place of blessing. It's like the world is just as it should be. It's like my fear and my anxiety has been stripped apart from me, and I'm finding myself back in that relationship again. There's shalom. There's peace. There's grace. There's love. My cup overflows. David wants you to experience that kind of life. Jesus wants you to experience that kind of life. That's why he said to you, love your enemy. That's why he said to you, there is possible to have a world free from rocks. Sincere hearts, holy ground, intimacy with God and with others. So we might be a non-anxious presence in the chaos of this world. Holy Spirit, I pray for courage. In fact, I wonder whether you just stand with me for a second. I want to pray one final thing as we just finish our time, as we go back into worship. But I, I feel to pray this over you as you stand. If this is an important word for you this morning, would you just, uh, whether you're online as well, just open your hands. I want, to, I want to pray what we prayed right at the start of this message. Lord, for the people here standing before you with their hands open, I pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? And Father, would you enable them to be strong and courageous, Lord, in this area of their life? Lord, I want to pray. Lord, every single one of us have different personalities. For some of us, we love to run into conflict. For some of us, we run as far away from conflict as possible. Holy Spirit, I pray for the spirit-infused courage that is needed right now for the conversations that lie ahead of these people this week. I want to pray for boldness and courage and grace to sit down with people that they have long not 
sat down with, maybe ignored or avoided. Lord, I pray that you would give them the right words, Lord. I want to ask for grace to be in those conversations, the grace that fills our lips so that our starting point is I'm a contributor to this too, and I, I don't want to walk around with this burden anymore. I don't want to walk around with this anxiety anymore. I, I want us to reach out, and I, I don't know if this is something you're going to respond to or not, but, but I just need to say this, that, that I, I forgive you, I forgive myself, and let's, let's try to make something work here together. Lord, I pray for the courage for that conversation. I pray for the grace that will be needed in the words of that conversation. And I pray for the humility. And I also pray for a releasing of the anointing and the blessing that those conversations create. You have set before us a table in the presence of our enemies. Lord, may our heads overflow with oil. May our cup constantly be spilling out as we experience the beauty of your forgiveness and our forgiveness with others. Stay in this place of just receiving from him as we close our time with a little bit more worship together.